And where people go wrong with this is that they get sucked into this idea that you somehow have to either understand why that's the content or you have to expose yourself to it over and over again. And what you've done such a great job of is saying, this is just how the disorder works. Welcome to season six of Pluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and all the big feelings too. We tackle the serious stuff without being too serious. And I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. And I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Pluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. I'll give you concrete steps to take and the words to say. Robin, this is a momentous occasion because we have been doing this podcast for years and we've never had a guest on before. We've never had a guest. Yeah. It only seems appropriate that the first guest that we are having is my pal and co-author and brilliant therapist, Dr. Reed Wilson, coming from officially Chapel Hill. So thanks for coming on and being our very first guest. Of course, my honor. Tell our audience a little bit of Reed's esteemed background too. Reed is one of the world's experts in treating anxiety disorders, and he also is just amazing at treating OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. He has written, how many books have you written, Reed? Six. Six books. All self-help. All self-help books. Two of them were with me. And four of them he did by himself, which was good for him. He was able to do it. His latest book is Stopping the Noise in Your Head, which is just fantastic if you haven't read it. He has some programs that you can get on his website where he teaches people how to deal with OCD in a way that is the most accessible and understandable and creative work in OCD, I think, than any other work I've ever seen. I've learned a ton from him. He's just awesome. We also are celebrating the 10th anniversary of the book that you co-wrote together, which is Anxious Kids and Anxious Parents. And that was your first collaboration. So what is the backstory, Reed, of how you and Lynn crossed paths and decided to write the book together? I think that we met in 2010. Does that, that sound about right? 2007. 2007. And I walked in and sat in the back of a presentation that Lynn was doing at a conference, big room full of folks, and I was mesmerized. This is going to sound inappropriate, but it was like love at first sight. I, <laughs> I, and my wife's probably okay with me saying it that way. After the talk, you came up and introduced yourself. And you said, I liked your talk. And I said, thanks very much. And blah, blah, blah. We had a little chat. And then a few weeks later, you emailed me out of the blue, from me out of the blue. And you said, I want to write a book about anxious kids and I don't work all that much with kids. So I want a co-author to write this book together. And I am looking at you. And I was like, ah! So I was so excited. So I emailed you right back, I'm sure. Like within two seconds, I emailed you right back. And then you emailed me and you said, I bet you're sitting by your computer waiting for me to respond. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, you want to play? So I emailed back to you and I said, dear unknown emailer, thank you for your email. It is currently Saturday. So I am very busy with other things. 
and I will get back to you when I am not as occupied with my own life. And I was like, should I send this? And I thought, screw it. I'm going to send it. I hit send. Boom. And then you emailed me right back and you said, I knew I was talking to the right person. And then you (laughs) and I just became friends. We were so compatible. It took us four years to write the two books together because we wrote Playing With Anxiety together too. Hugely impactful for me. Just a brilliant experience to do that. And I feel quite proud of what we've accomplished. I feel quite proud of it too. When you think of what your mission as clinicians to include in anxious kids, anxious parents, what do you think you were contributing originally to the conversation? Because I think that it was somewhat groundbreaking. I can say my side, because what I have had experienced over the years was parents asking me to see little Johnny and to fix him. And I remember the very first case I ever had where they did that. And I talked to the parents and I said, you know, there's a chance that you and your partner will also need to do some work on yourselves in order for little Johnny to get stronger. And they fired me on the spot. Parents really don't like that. And so I think that's where we wanted to break some ground to go, wait, we can work together. Everybody can work together. You can be stronger as parents by learning some skills. And really, I think, point of view, perspective. I think that's what we were trying to do is like at the end of this book for you to, you know, it's a relatively long book, but there's like four or five things that you need to remember about the book and then you can push forward. So that's where we were going. I don't know how groundbreaking it was, but it sure felt important. You and I both came at it from the perspective that it was a top-down problem and we really wanted to give parents the information that they needed but we were coming up with the title, right? We wanted to call it Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents. There was a little bit of like, oh, do we really want to say to the parents that they're anxious too? And Reed and I were like, yes, we really do. We really do. And it's interesting because our book has been published in other languages. Oftentimes they take that out of the title because they don't want the parents to feel as if we're pointing the finger at them. But Since that book came out 10 years ago, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of work and a lot of programs introduced that really say you got to work with the parents. And I hear this revolutionary new way of treating anxiety is that you work with the parents. Reed and I were talking about that in 2007. Yeah, you're talking about Yale's program of coming out of space, right? It's like where they almost totally talk to the parents and not work with the kids and stuff. Yeah, that's all they do. They have a lot of good data behind it. It's a great approach. But in 2007, Reed and I were like, let's make sure the parents have this information. Yeah, I would also add one thing around the kids, which is we didn't feel like, okay, we want to write this book to teach these skills to the parents and then expect that they can really do all of that on their own with their kids. So that's why we had the Playing With Anxiety book for the kids to really help the parents move along with it all by talking to the kids in a way that they could relate to. Could we use the voice of a 14-year-old girl who had anxiety and her younger brother who had some trouble? That was why we combined these two books. Yeah, because it was really all about a family perspective. Do you feel like since you all have published the book and you experienced a bit of pushback Do you see progress where more and more parents are willing to step in 
and be a part of the therapy and acknowledge their role? Do you feel like we're making progress? Yeah, because I think that one of the things that Reed and I both felt when we were writing this book, and I certainly feel it in my clinical work is, and I do hear it now, it continues to astound me how often clinicians keep the parents out of the treatment. And I have never met a parent who has said, I don't want to know anything about what you're doing with my kid. I do meet a lot of parents that say, well, the therapist told me that I'm not allowed to be in the sessions or that it's important for my child to have this private time and that I don't need to know what's going on in the therapy room. Now, maybe if you're 15, but not if you're six. Even though it felt like we were talking to the parents in a way that people were like, oh, you're telling the parents they're anxious? In my day-to-day work, in my presentations, in my clinical work, the parents are desperate for guidance and information. They want somebody to say, do this, don't do this, and this is a family thing. The desire for parents to be included has always been there. It's just that I think that our field was sort of selling them this idea that it needed to be separate. And I just don't agree with that. I mean, you hear me say that all the time. I don't agree with that at all, at all, at all. Amen. And, you know, even if I'm working with a kid independently, again, if they're not teenagers, by the end of the session, I'll invite the parents in. I'll ask the child to talk to the parents about what they understood about the session. And that is the model that we should be using, minimally that. Mm -hmm. I do think it it does help to have one-on-one with the child often to make that connection and try to explain things to them and so forth and not have the parents in the room, but at least bring them in Break through that fourth wall, we might say, pull back on the curtain and let the parents in on what's going on. And then ask them to email me about how it's going. And, you know, we have all kinds of assignments that we want to hear from them next time we see them. Yeah. One of the things I think that Reed and I have in common is that therapy for anxiety, for OCD, is an active process. And so we're always trying to make sure, and the analogy I use is you're teaching your kid how to play violin. You wouldn't say, well, we're only going to play the violin for the half an hour that you have your lesson every week. And that's something that Reed is fantastic at. It's an active process. It's about doing. And that's the key to this is that you can't just meet with somebody and talk about what's going on and not have practice in between. The other rule that I think we break is... In session one, I just get to work with what needs to be done. And I don't take an extensive history and I don't do any of that. It's like, what's your chief complaint? What is it you need to work on? And let's get going so that at the end of session one, if I can do it, they have a homework assignment for session two. Let's jump in and go. And I think that really breaks some of the rules that have been long established in psychotherapy. And we don't care. It continues to be. I hear people say like, well, I do a four-session assessment. Four sessions. Read, what can you get done in four sessions? Oh my, right? Yeah. By session four, we might already be spacing out. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because they know what they need to be doing and they don't need to be coming in weekly. And we have a way of checking in and, and let's get going. Yeah, let's get going. There are a few people who have been instrumental in my career and how I think talk about Michael Yapko all the time. I think that his foundation that he gave me was one of the reasons why Reed and I were so compatible. But Reed has been one of the biggest influences on the way I think, on the way I practice. And when we were writing these books together, 
I think we talked every day. I don't know that there was a day that we didn't talk. So in terms of his brilliance and his impact and just his role in my life as such a friend, it's just amazing. Yeah. I'm so grateful for you, Dr. Wilson. Thank you. I'm glad to see that my student has exceeded me. That's what I live for. <laughs> I have not exceeded you. <laughs> Only in the field of uh, child work. Not giving you that for everything else, but with kids, totally you have. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Well, many are destined to fail, but lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free, and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks. That's earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. 
It's in-network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Okay, we're back. Okay, so Reed, the people that listen to this podcast, there's a lot of clinicians, there's a ton of parents that are trying to get help with their kids. We've got a really dedicated group of people that are really engaged in learning about this. So let's talk OCD because that's where you are just the master. Tell me and tell our audience, what are the most important things if there's a parent listening and their child's been diagnosed with OCD or it runs in the family, they're struggling with it, give us the key things that you want people to know about it and maybe the things that people get wrong about it. The number one thing that we need to pay attention to is that OCD delivers its disorder based on themes, based on the individual and whatever it, you know, if we personify the disorder, it's going after whatever will work, which is to grab the attention of the individual and frighten them if they don't obey the rules that the disorder delivers to them. So the most important task and a task that if we don't accomplish this, nothing else really works. And that is to see that certain themes that come in, checking, cleaning, feeling right inside my body, whatever it may be, those are the themes of the disorder. We have to elevate the game to go, it is not about these themes. So we have to settle what it is that they're worried about and distinguish what I would say signals versus noise. If I'm diagnosed with OCD, I am going to have themes and I must recognize that if I'm going to treat the disorder, I've got themes. We need to disengage with those themes. If you think it's a signal, something that's important that you need to handle, you will continue to be handled by the disorder. So if we need to do any kind of problem solving to get to the place where this is no longer a signal, I want to move it over to noise. So when in the moment the obsession pops up, I can step back mindfully and go, not going there, you know, none of my business, kind of pushing my hand back now to dismiss it and get to shift my attention to something else. So there it is, mindfully step back, oh, it's happening. Okay, not paying attention to that. Turn my attention to something else. And this is also controversial to instruct them to do that. I get accused of just having people distract themselves instead of go after the topic. And I don't see that at all. And so I want to make anything else I pay attention to next 
more important than the obsession and my urge to do my compulsion. And what I say is, you know, even if you get there and it only lasts eight seconds and the obsession comes back again or the urge comes back again, you still won. So we're trying to win moment by moment. If the obsession pops back up, if the urge to do your compulsion comes up and grabs your attention and again, that's brand new game. I'm starting again. And so you can win moment by moment and you got to not be frustrated about that. But going back to how I started, the most important thing, and this is what I think exposure and response prevention gets wrong. You know, it's got good research. It's been very successful in making changes and so forth. But we lose a lot of people because the instructions with a lot of therapists doing this work is you go toward that topic that you're afraid of and you kind of embellish what it might be like if that were to happen and then do it over and over again. And eventually you will begin to acclimate to that and begin to dismiss it. And I just think that's ass backwards. So if we talk about that in terms of the example, the thing that we say is the content doesn't matter, the content doesn't matter, the content doesn't matter. And that's with a lot of the anxiety disorders, particularly with OCD. And what where people get stuck in this is that OCD tends to bring up content that is incredibly compelling and disturbing. Like you say, it wants to go after the thing that's most important to you. So a mom has a new baby and immediately the OCD grabs on to the safety of her baby. And what if something goes wrong and she has to do? It's really good at finding that thing that feels the most compelling. And where people go wrong with this is that they get sucked into this idea that you somehow have to either understand why that's the content or you have to expose yourself to it over and over again. And what you've done such a great job of is saying, this is just how the disorder works. And the content that pops up is the content that pops up. So, oh, there it is. Hi, nice to see you. There it is. I remember you and I talking about this. We were on a walk somewhere. This idea that sometimes therapists say, well, it could happen, right? So you have this fear, this obsessional thought that maybe you'll kill your kid or maybe you'll scream out a horrible word during a important business meeting. And some people will say, yeah, well, that you just have to live with the possibility, right? Yeah. And there's the sentence, you know, maybe I'm a pedophile. Maybe I'm not a pedophile. I can handle uncertainty. Seems nuts to me. Who in their right mind right. would want to accept that I might kill my child or that bump I felt in the road is someone I hit and got knocked into the high grass and will be dead by morning and it'll be my fault. Who in their right mind would accept that? We're asking these people who are terribly vulnerable to this fear to accept that. You know, this is like the Wizard of Oz. The voice of OCD is so dominating and the cost of not obeying its instructions feels so high. What we're trying to do is pull back that veil and go, oh, this this little guy behind the curtain that's pulling these little levers and he's nothing. And yet the work is still going to be very difficult. It's not like, oh, 
realize that that is my theme and then we dismiss it and then, oh boy, I feel so relieved. No, you still have to go through the distress of the sense of not knowing, but it needs to be generic and not specific. And that is a hard sell, but it's the very first thing I'm going to work on because I know that they're going to be serving two sides. I'm going to try to be a good client and obey what my therapist tells me to do simultaneously. Oh, I'm praying to God that nothing bad happens. Right. And maybe if I could just do this compulsion, it is going to make me feel better in the short term. And what's the harm, right? I might as well just do it and get it over with. So, okay. So I'm stressing out about germs. And so what's the harm of just going and washing my hands again, right? I might as well just go do that to get rid of this. And that's where people get stuck. So that's where the hard work is. For people to buy into this, they absolutely have to trust you. They have to feel like you understand this, that you get this that you are offering them something because you're telling them to do the exact opposite of what the disorder wants them to do and maybe what other therapists have told them to do. Right. I'm going to be one up with my client to play the expert. Like I understand what I know OCD, like the back of my hand. And I'm also going to play one down to my client, which is, I don't know you. And so, you know, when I'm explaining something to someone, I will continually stop and go, does that make sense to you? What do you think about this idea? So that we, by the end of that first session, for instance, we're collaborating. You know, I will play the expert, but then I'm going to back down and go, well, how's it going listening to this? What kind of sense does it make? And I think I would just say the, you know, I have this online course that's like four hours of me presenting what you and I are talking about now. I have uh, three characters that go through scenes to kind of represent some major issues that people have with OCD. And I think we can deliver a lot of this in that manner. That's what I believe and I'm working to promote so that when a client comes into treatment for OCD, they are already a collaborative partner. We save you know, session upon session, trying to explain to an individual what needs to be done by explaining to a large group what needs to be done. And we'll see over time, you know, how all of that goes. When you're working with people now, do you strongly suggest or even require that they watch your online program before they meet with you? I don't require it, but, you know, I will have a waiting list that means, you know, four to six weeks or, or so before they can see me. And I encourage them to do it. And I say it's cost effective. You know, you're going to pay me this amount of money for one session. You can pay $80, I think it is, to learn all of this stuff that you and I don't have to talk about. And then baseball analogy, then we're on second base when you come in to see me. And so I do encourage them to do it. But if they don't do it, then we'll move along. Yeah, but man, they should. It's like when people come to see me with their kids, if they've read Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, again, I feel like they're on second base because if they come in and they know nothing about this and then they're saying, well, what I've learned is it's really important with my child for them to know exactly what's going to happen during the day, right? If they haven't read the book yet, then I'm like, okay, we got to start here, which is fine. But it's so nice when they come in and say, yeah, we read the book and we've really been accommodating a lot. So we've been working on that just moves things along. And as we said at the beginning, you and I like to move quickly. 
We are appreciative of the effort, the expense, the time that it takes to come to therapy. And we want to give you stuff that you can use. And that's why you are so good at just setting this up for people to be able to move forward on their own. Let's take a break. And then when we come back, knowing that we've got parents listening who have kids, maybe you and I can talk about some of the things that we really want to watch out for with kids. OCD is really misunderstood a lot. It's misdiagnosed. It's missed a lot. And so maybe we can help parents just sort of keep an eye out and what are the first things that they maybe can do on their own that would really be helpful. I am really working on improving my diet by making sure that I get the best quality products, organic foods, and I really want to make sure that I'm not using harsh chemicals in my home. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting everything online and then quickly shipped to my doorstep, that is a huge time saver. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. I can use their filters to suit my lifestyle needs. So maybe you're looking for organic snacks for your kids, or maybe you're gluten-free. As a Thrive Market member, I save money on every single grocery order. You will too. On average, I save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily, always has some of my favorite brands. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash flusterclucks. Thrivemarket.com slash flusterclucks. If you've got kids at home, I think you probably feel like you're feeding them all the time. It's just trying to come up with good recipes, good food, things they'll eat. Well, There's a great podcast. It's called Didn't I Just Feed You? It's a weekly podcast. It's hosted by longtime food professionals, Stacey Billis and Megan Splawn, and it's about feeding our families. It's even for parents who hate to cook because really, kids eat a lot. So every week, Stacy and Megan get real about feeding kids, tweens, and teens from how to turn nachos into a family dinner, that sounds good, to the magic of meatballs or dealing with that after-school snack problem. They talk about coping with picky eaters and the mental load of being the family cook, all as part of their mission to make cooking easier, more delicious, and maybe even fun. So Didn't I Just Feed You is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your favorite podcast. You can learn more on didntijustfeedyou.com or find them on Instagram as at didn't I just feed you? You're really going to enjoy listening to Stacy and Megan. They're going to help you out. And isn't that what podcasts are all about? Okay, so now back to the show. The thing about OCD when it shows up, and the word I use a lot, which some people have given me a hard time about, but I don't care, is that it can look kind of weird. 
kids are doing things and adults do things that are weird, you start seeing behaviors, you start seeing repetitive things that kids are doing. They become more and more rigid and more and more intractable about the way things need to be done or things that need to happen before they leave the house, for example. You might see it with food. You might see it with clothing. You might see it with certain rituals and behaviors that have to happen at bedtime with kids. So a child might have a two-hour ritual that they have to go through at night. And one of the things you want to pay attention to is that the reason that parents will participate in these rituals and help with the compulsions is because in the immediate moment, it takes the distress down. So parents will say, well, I just got to get my kid to bed or I just got to get him to school. So we're just going to participate in this. I don't know any other thing to do. Yeah. And when I don't participate in it, boy, does my child get upset. Boy, does my child completely falls apart. So why would I want to do that? And that's where parents need a lot of support and encouragement that interrupting the compulsion, not participating in it, is going to cause distress at first. If you were talking to a, a family read at this place, right, you're talking to the parents and it's going to cause them distress, what would be the language you would use with these parents to give them the confidence or the support that they need in order to do this hard work? Because it is really hard work. Yeah. And however, if I can get the child on board with the task, that is the number one thing I want to do. Because the last thing I want to do is to have parents have to impose restrictions on the child without the child's commitment to work with them too. If the child understand what's going on, we can start, you know, having a negotiated settlement about let's make a small change in your action. And that's what I want to shoot for. So if I've got a pattern as a child of a ritual before I go to bed, as the therapist, I tend to look for, can we add something? To the ritual. Seems nuts to do that, right? It's so much easier to add something than to take something away. Kids are really scared about that. But if I can get the child before she starts going up two steps at a time and then one step backwards, if I can ask them to add something like do a pirouette on the stair and then go up, if I can engage them like that, which again seems sounds nuts. But we've just created a new pattern. And it's much easier to change a pattern that's only one week old than it is to change a pattern that's three years old. So I want to start there. And I want the child to explain to the parents why they're trying to do that if we can. Now, you're going to get kids, of course, who are resistant to all of that. And so that's the most difficult part that we have. And I think in essence, talking to the parents where I want them to get to is to say, we understand your distress. I'm so sorry you're feeling scared and hurt. And I'm no longer going to participate in the compulsive behavior. Right. And if you want to do compulsions, it will be without me. And then I want to explain clearly, which you're saying too, to the parents is we have a term called extinction burst. Which I call extinction explosion. I always say it ain't no burst. <laughs> yeah. And what that means is kids do not want to change the pattern. 
And so when the parents come in and say, we are going to change our participation in the pattern, the kids go berserk, you know, and become hysterical and throw tantrums and they don't sleep all night and so forth. And that's what you're referring to in terms of we need to prepare the parents. Well, and I think that one of the things that definitely I learned from you and that I hear all the time is that if we're going to do exposure therapy, the term I use is front-loading. Like you're saying, is that if you don't understand the rationale behind this, if you don't understand where we're going, if you don't understand the reasons that we're putting these things in place, then it's just mean, right? So if you've got a kid who you're trying to interrupt their compulsions or say you've got a kid who's afraid of spiders and we're just going to do exposure therapy, but there's no information about how this process works and the way we're thinking about it, then you're just throwing a kid into a situation that feels really uncomfortable, but they don't have any rationale for why they should do this. And it doesn't get you anywhere. And I think that's a really key thing that you are so good at explaining. You call it exposure plus is that language that I've heard you use. There's this really important part before we throw the kid into the situation where they understand what's going on, where they can tell you what the purpose is behind it. Right. So we're talking about having ownership. Therapists will ask me all the time, can these skills and strategies work for children? Oh, it works great for kids because it's a game. You know, we're going to personify the disorder. We're going to say, this is what it's doing to you. This is why you're having these reactions. This is what we want to do. It wants you to make sure you're sure, you're certain about things. What's the opposite of being sure? You know, we talk about that. And then I'm going to go after that because I want to kick OCD's butt. I want to take it on. I want to score points. And we'll, you know, I'll use a token economy. I'll have reward system that parents give kids if they have the tick marks on the refrigerator chart that shows how many times they did what we were talking them to do. I have no problem with giving rewards because kids are not going to simply work for the rewards. Even if they do in the beginning, they're going to get some results and then they're going to say, oh, this is possible, right? We want to have them start winning, and but just start winning very small things. I mean, to put that pirouette in the middle of the taking three steps at a time is a small victory. And then we just embellish that and keep moving. All right. So let me ask you this. When you are working with adults, I work with kids more, you work with adults more. What do you want to say to parents who have OCD, who adults who have OCD, So that this thing doesn't, we know that there's a genetic push. I have one client who is insistent that this is not genetic. He is very clear that he was trained to have OCD by his mother. And I say to him, well, you know, we know there's a genetic. He says, I was trained. What do you want to say to parents who know they have OCD or have a partner that has OCD so that they can start being preventative and get in the way of this generational pattern that we see so strongly with OCD? I'll back up to say just another type of illustration. If I see often a mother with panic disorder who drives her kids to school on the highway and gets really freaked out and feels tense and her hands are squeezing on the, you know, steering wheel and she doesn't want her children to see that she is anxious. And what I want them to be able to say is to convey that, that this is happening and I am working on this. This is what I'm trying to do right now, as opposed to hiding it, because hiding it adds one more problem 
to the whole setup. And their parents aren't all that good at hiding it either. They're like, no, everything's fine. I just hope we don't die going over the bridge. But other than that, it's all good. <laughs> Again, the whole thing around genetic versus, you know, whatever. Yes, if you've got a parent who requires you as a child to wash your hands in particular ways because that they require that, you may take on some of those things in your own head, but it won't become a disorder because of that. I do think this is pretty much 100% genetic. But the other thing I say to parents is there's such shame associated with the disorder. You don't want your child at between 17 and 23, which is the most likely age that somebody will get the disorder. You don't want them to have this bizarre set of thoughts that feel so shameful that they can't tell anybody about it and then suffer, you know, and then hope that there's some discovery. You want to be open about this tendency that might show up in your life and that you have to push through the sense of shame and there are strategies to help you get better. So any parent who really hears what I am saying will buy into the idea of, I need to be more open and transparent about what's happening and that I am being courageous to take it on. You want that too. I certainly want that too, because you want kids to understand that even though it's really difficult, it is possible to get stronger and it takes effort. And you can probably see the effort that I'm going through to do this. And I'm going to do everything I can to win this battle against this disorder. It's the same like if we talk about with addiction, right? There's so much alcoholism in my family on both sides, my husband and I, and we've been very open with our kids about the choices that we make and being aware of it. And we are very clear that this is something that runs in our family. I think that that openness, I love the way you say that because if a family has never talked about it and then suddenly a 15-year-old is having these bizarre intrusive thoughts and they don't know what to do with them. Very different than if they start having these thoughts and they're like, oh yeah, okay, so I know what this thing is. Immediately, it takes away the shame and then they'll get help and people will know what it is. You may see this often, is that people go for years and years and years and years not really knowing what this thing is and trying to figure it out on their own, keeping it a secret and it runs their lives. And then I wonder how much relief people must feel when they come to see you. It happens with me too, where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how this thing works. I know this thing. This is what it does. It's the same for you as it is for everybody else. The content doesn't matter. Let's get to work. I mean, what an absolute sense of relief. And if we can preempt that by having families talk openly about it, how amazing is that? Yeah. And I think the other angle here is if we talk about adults, they've gone through two or three or four therapists to work on their OCD and they have failed at it. And once you try and fail so much, it's very difficult to go and try again. So part of what I try to do, and I think you probably do too, is to say, this is different. It is not more of the same. I operate differently. I take a different approach and that gives them some hope. That's really what we want. Oh, well, there is an alternative to what I've been doing, including there is a part of myself that I've not brought forward before to address this disorder that I'm now going to bring forward. 
that gives me a sense of possibility and hope. So neither you nor I have any problem with being perceived as an outlier or different than other therapists, and particularly with the people who have failed in treatment to be able to convey to them, wait a minute, there's another way to explore this that might give you gains that you haven't gotten yet. There are things that you don't know yet, and I'm going to teach them to you. There is a way to approach this that you haven't tried yet. I'm going to show it to you. Yeah, there's the hope, right? There's the positive expectancy. It is not complex. It is simple. It's difficult. Right. It's hard, really hard, but it's not complex. And that's what we're talking about today, too. That has to get conveyed because it's true. Yeah. I say all the time when I'm talking to people about anxiety, it is predictable, it is redundant, and it is persistent. And once we recognize those things, the wish, the desire that people have is that they're going to come to see somebody like you or me, and we're going to make this thing go away. And we really have to tackle that right from the beginning. This thing is going to show up and it's your response to it, not the elimination of it. And I think that's what you and I probably do. We want to convey that from minute three, which is why we don't spend four sessions taking a history. Right. But that's also, I think, what we tried to accomplish in Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents and also playing with anxiety, the kids book, which is exactly what you said. Over and over again, you're going to see the pattern. We'll recognize it. It's not about these little specific things. It's about this general pattern. I have you know, an advantage when I work with somebody in their 50s, 60s, 70s with OCD. We can go, okay, well, wh what was your theme when you first got it when you were nine? And then when did it change? Oh, when I was 16, it became this. And then every decade, it's something new. It's like, okay, so that's interesting. So what we know is the topic keeps changing. What stays the same? Exactly. And we're going to go after the thing that stays the same, which is going to be a pattern, not a specific topic. Yeah. I was talking to a teenager recently and her content has become more distressing to her because it's grabbing onto things that are more developmentally appropriate for a teenager that are more distressing. So I was just saying the same thing to her. Remember what you used to think about when you were seven or eight or nine? And she's like, oh, God, that was so easy back then. I say, yeah, because the disorder is now able to grab on to the things. You're much more mature. You've got a lot more information about the world. It's a sneaky little disorder. It's going to grab on to something that's really going to get your attention. But when you were talking about the content that you were struggling with when you were nine, you didn't say to me, oh, it was so easy back then that it's the same thing over and over and over again is such an important message for people to get. Because this girl said it's getting worse because the content feels more significant to her. It's just different content. Yeah. And just you wait, because if you start intervening and feeling like you're winning, then it's possible that it's going to double down and give you five more things that you never thought about before. So it's not just sneaky. It's powerfully manipulative and almost punishing if you don't obey. And so you have to expect that too. I just want to be very clear where people can get your OCD program. I know it's on your website, anxieties.com. That program to me, like you say, it is so incredibly cost effective for you to listen to this, for you to get this. If you have a partner who's got OCD, this should be mandatory family viewing. 
what else do we do you want to tell people about this program? First is to say anxieties.com is primarily a free self-help site. And you know, we've got some of these larger packages because it serves people well, but you can go on anxieties.com and find self-help stuff on OCD and it's pages and pages of approaches that you can start thinking about and actually tactics you can use. But I have two of these courses, one for people with anxiety disorders and worry and so forth called Stop Worrying. And then this one's called Stopping the Noise in Your Head or no OCD in the Six Moment Game. And you'll just see it on the tab across the top. It'll just say self-help courses. And that drop down will just have those two there and you can look at them. But I've also got a you know YouTube page and you'll see all these clips that I have that they're four or five minutes long they're free. It's interesting that most people who come in and want to see me have watched all <laughs> those free videos. It's like, I've seen everything. I've heard your voice. That's what to know about all that stuff. Young people that come in, I'll say, come in. we're going to sit down. We're going to watch this. I mean, I've watched your video so many times too. You make this scary, overwhelming, seemingly complicated thing so manageable and so digestible for people. It really is amazing what you do. You know, I think you're amazing. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being our first guest. You will always have that position now, Reed. You will always be the first guest on Fluster Clocks. Well, thanks for having me. Great fun to talk to you and good to see you because everybody else is hearing us, but we're looking at each other and you know, I'm in North Carolina and you're up there in New Hampshire. So great. I know. All right. Well, I hope we see each other soon because it's been too long. That would be nice. Okay. And thanks, Robin. Thank you, Reed. Thanks for listening. And if you found this podcast helpful, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find this information. And if you'd like to dig deeper on any of these topics, we have specialized playlists on our Spotify profile, and the link is in the show notes. Topics like teens, depression, and OCD. Bye, Lynn. Bye, Robin. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.